want to urge you guys, and Pastor Nick mentioned this a little bit, but urge you to continue to pray for the end of the spread of this virus. I know there's a lot of, I know of at least one church in our area, a bigger church that was planning on opening next week, and it's really hard for a bigger church to be able to gather. And so if things shut down again, you know, they're probably going to have to stop that. So pray that God would relent and have mercy and that churches would be able to meet. And I also wanted to uh, go on a little bit more about what Pastor Nick mentioned a couple weeks ago as well, about having uh, all the, the young people in the room, the babies, the little kids. We truly are grateful and happy to have little kids in this room. And we know that sometimes they can be loud, they can move around, they can fuss, but that truly does not bother us. I want you all and us as a church family to really try to understand that these things aren't distractions. These young people are not distractions. They might have our focus you know, turned a little bit here or there, but it's not bad. We are blessed to be able to have young people in our congregation, and it is a, it is a good thing, and we should try to support each other with that. You know, we, we hate when we see kids when they get older leave the, the, leave the church, even after, have, after having made a profession of the faith. So we are happy to have young people in this room with us now that they may hear the gospel, they may know what it's like to be a part of the church. And uh, I'll just encourage you guys to, to show encouragement to one another with the little kids in here. I, plus, it means that you don't always have to listen to my voice the whole time as well, too. It's, it's nice to, to hear the voice of a little one laughing and stuff. So if you would, uh, we're going to begin now. If you want to turn to the 11th chapter of Romans... Romans chapter 11 is where we will spend most of our time this morning as we're finishing up our series on those slogans that emerged from uh, the, which emerged as an emphasis to recover the gospel and correct the errant teaching of the Roman Catholic Church in the 1500s. Now, these doctrines, of course, are still greatly important to us today. Though they were, like I said, again, really recovered back in the 1500s, they matter to us today greatly. They are a true summary of the teaching on the doctrine of justification. Now, justification is simply God declaring us to be righteous on account of the merits of Christ, even though we are sinners. That's what it means to be justified. God declares us to be righteous based on the merits of Christ. And that is the clause that hangs before all of these statements. So when we think of these statements like this, this is how we should think of them. We are justified by faith alone, through grace alone, by the merits of Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, all to the glory of God alone. And and they remain for us, and they will continue to remain for the church until Christ returns, a, a highway of orthodoxy. They are a guardian of the gospel and the faith once and for all delivered unto the saints. So it is very important, and it is good that we have been looking at these things over the past five weeks. This is our sixth week now. So we've covered sola scriptura, sola fide, sola gratia, solus Christus. And for this morning, we'll be considering the slogan which tells us what the motivation was for that God has in all that he, that he does, soli deo gloria, to God alone be the glory. And I can't stress enough the importance of this doctrine, friends. We can have a, a catalog of sermons preached for weeks about the glory of God and barely even plumb the importance of what is said here in, in Scripture. It is important, and because it is important, soli deo gloria was known as the heartbeat of the Reformation. It, this point, this is what drove the, the reformers to do the things they did. It was the heart and the soul of the Reformation. The glory of God is what drove these dear brothers and sisters to risk persecution and even death before Rome. It fueled their resolve because God being glorified was more important than anything else in their life. 
And likewise, you know, the glory of God should be our top priority. It should inflame our hearts, and our deepest affection should be stirred by and for the glory of God. Is there anything more important in your life, friends? Is there anything more important than God's glory? If so, I would submit to you that your priorities are out of line, and so I hope that this morning, to be able, I hope to be able to show you the greatness of God's glory and why it should be our top priority. So let's read God's word, and then after that, we'll ask him to bless our time uh, considering this most important of doctrines through prayer. So the reading of God's word beginning at verse 33 in Romans chapter 11. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him And through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. That ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and sufficient word. May he grant us understanding. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, these these words are profound. And we are grateful to you for giving us sinful creatures a glimpse of your glory, as as it were, in your word here as they testify to who you are, and we pray that you would give to us understanding for Christ's sake, that our lives might be orientated rightly, that we would see your glory, and that it would be the driving force in our life for all that we do. Lord, please bless our time. Help us to have understanding. We depend upon you for that, Holy Spirit. Who can discern the mind of the Lord? It is the Spirit who grants discernment. And so please help us, Spirit, to honor Christ this morning. Keep us in the bounds of orthodoxy as we, as we study these deep waters here. Let us have an increased faith in you. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. So Benjamin Keach was a particular Baptist pastor. Particular Baptist pastor means in opposition to what was called the General Baptist. It was their view of atonement. So he believed in a particular atonement. You could tell it was easy to be a Baptist in that time by the the smile on his portrait. Uh, He lived in the 17th century, and he wrote extensively on on a different number of matters, important theological topics, but his most well-known contribution to Christ's kingdom is probably the catechism that he produced. And it's known as the Baptist Catechism or Benjamin Keach's Catechism. Now, I know for some of you, you hear the word catechism, and, and it seems strange, especially to have the word Baptist in front of it. Isn't a catechism from, you know, that, that false church, the Roman Catholics, isn't that a Roman Catholic thing? And the answer is, is actually no, not, not at all. A catechism is not a Roman Catholic thing. It's, it's simf- simply a helpful tool for teaching doctrine, and the church as a whole would be strengthened if we more readily took advantage of these good catechisms. It would help you to understand and to memorize sound doctrine. Now, Keach, in his catechism, he begins it with this question. This is the first question that he poses in it. And these catechisms, they work systematically. But his first question is this, who is the first and best of beings? So we might think of it like this for our purposes this morning. What being deserves glory? What being is greater than all other beings and is worthy and deserving of worship? That that really is the idea behind this question. And Keech's answer, I think, will be obvious to us. It, It is, very simply, 
God is the first and best of beings. In other words, there is none greater than God. There is none before God. And we're speaking here of this in a couple of ways. God is the uncreated creator. So in that sense, he is the first. It is impossible for us to truly grasp this, but, but God has no beginning. There was never a time when Yahweh didn't exist. There was, there was no one, there was nothing ever before him. So he's first in that ultimately deeply profound way, but he's also first in the sense that he's preeminent. None can surpass him. And of course, he's the best of all beings. There is none greater than our God. And the implication is, of course, that he deserves worship. There, that he is glorious and he is glorified in all things because of who he is. That God is zealous for his own glory even. I don't have the time to fully bring this to light this morning. I'll get back to it a little bit later towards the end of the sermon. But I listed a number of texts that will help you to see that God is chiefly concerned with his glory. It's on the note sheet. You can pull it up online later on if you don't have it printed out or your outline. But it's actually the second question that I really wanted us to consider this morning. And if you're familiar with the Reformed catechisms at all, even a little bit, you'll certainly recognize this question as the first question in the Westminster Catechism. That question is used by our, or that catechism, I should say, is used by our Presbyterian brothers. And Benjamin Keach simply borrowed from it because it's a good catechism, but it makes sense that he puts this question here second. So let's note this question. That question is, what is the chief end of man? So, so Keech puts that question second. Our Presbyterian friends put it first. So in other words, what is the purpose that we all have? What did God create people for? And so it's good, I think it's a good thing that this question comes second because the answer to this question, that the answer to this question gives, is supported by first establishing the question, who is the first and best of all beings? So the answer is the same answer that we have in the Westminster Catechism. It's man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. The God who is the first and best of beings created us, but not without purpose. He created us to know His glory, that He might be glorified in displaying His glory to rational creatures that can begin to grasp who He is. He created us to glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. There is nothing better that we could do than to glorify God. So what, what, why do you do the things that you do? Why, do you? why do you work the job that you work at? Is it just to have a paycheck? Why did you marry the person that you married? Does it entail enjoying God? Is it all for God's glory? Are you grateful to God for all that you have and for all that you don't have? Is everything that you do done for the glory of God? That's why the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.31, whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. Now, if we're honest, which we want to be, the answer is no. no we don't always do everything to the glory of God. We, we sin. We do things for our own glory sometimes, and we need to repent of those things. We need to turn, to whatever, um, we need to turn from whatever doesn't glorify God. And we could spend hours just talking about those different things. But since we don't have the time for that this morning, I trust that the Spirit of God has given, that the Spirit of God has given you will convict you of those things which you do that don't glorify the Lord. And in that, we're grateful for Christ and His righteousness. Are, are we not? Because it is Christ and His righteousness that enables us to come before God and to have favor with God. We fall short of His glory but Christ never falls short of his glory, whereas every person does absolutely. 
With the grace that God supplies to His church and the power that He has transferred to us in saving us and uniting to Christ, we do, as individuals and as a church, seek to glorify God in all that we do. And that's where we come back to these sola statements. We first of all, as redeemed sons and daughters of God, give glory to God in our salvation. That's where it starts. The five solas are about giving God glory. All of them are. Not just this specific one. All five are about giving God the glory He deserves. And I like to think of, the, of it like this. The first four solas that we've been teaching upon the past few weeks, four weeks, uh, which are all already covered, they act like individual streams. Individual streams that are running parallel side by side, and they are emptying all into this ocean, this ocean of God's glory. And so, in other words, what we see is this. When we affirm that we are justified by faith alone, we're saying that we acknowledge that regeneration, that is, being born again, precedes faith. And therefore, we can't claim any responsibility for our salvation. There are no works done by us for our justification, not at the start or at the beginning of our salvation. There is no room for us to boast. And so therefore, God is glorified by us affirming sola fide. When we affirm that we are justified through grace alone, we are affirming that in no way have we earned our salvation. We have, again, no room to boast. God is glorified in us by affirming sola gratia. When we affirm that we are justified through the merits of Christ alone, we are affirming that He is the only mediator between God and man. We don't need anyone else. Therefore, no one has room to boast. And God is glorified by us affirming sola scriptura. God is glorified alone in our salvation, not the Pope, not Mary, not, not any of the saints that have gone on before us. This is why the Reformation was so important. He actually will uh, glorify us, but that's not talking about us becoming like stealing glory from God. That's God blessing us and uniting us to Christ and making us fit to dwell with Him for eternity. I think this morning of B.B. B. Warfield's summar summarization of the Reformation and its theology, specifically these statements, he said that these statements were an apprehension of God in majesty. An apprehension of God in majesty. That's what these solas teach. That's what we should be taking from them as well. They are a rediscovery of the greatness and the glory and magnitude and the majesty of God in a world and in a church that had become thoroughly man-centered in its approach to worship. And, you know, the Reformation called a halt to all of that which drew attention to man. And instead it said, God is great. God is to be glorified. God, the sovereign God of scriptures, the God who made the heavens and the earth, He is to be exalted in all of His majesty. In many ways, friends, I, I suppose that would define what's wrong with the church today. We need a reformation. Because in many respects, the church has lost the glory of God. He, it has lost sight of the majesty and the greatness of God. In many churches today, you have entertainment as a draw for people. You have so-called pastors redesigning the stage every few weeks to look like a movie set so that it'll be this changed thing and it'll be enticing to people. They've, they've removed the pulpit and they've placed instead a, a table that they can put their, you know, their laptop on. I suppose it's fitting because you can't really call what they do preaching. It's more or less self-help moralism that they're offering and a bit with a bit of a comedy act. They have lost sight of the glory of God. And church, the glory of God should be our biggest draw. 
That should be the biggest draw that we have in coming together. That God would be glorified, that we would see His glory, that we would experience His glory in some sense that, that reminds us of what heaven will be like when we are eternally united to Him in faith and our glorified bodies and, and don't have to worry about any of the sin that still plagues us. And so with that in mind, I want us to go to the, this particular passage in Romans 11, and I want us to see three things. They are, in the first place, the incomprehensibility of God. In the second place, the sovereignty of God. And in the third place, the glory of God. So first, the incomprehensibility of God. You notice how the Apostle Paul begins this section that we're looking at this morning? Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. His, his ways are past finding out. This is not some first-year seminary student saying this. This is not a, a new believer saying this. This is the Apostle Paul who is saying this. Of the Almighty God, oh, the depths that he has. And he's saying this, you understand, at a very key moment in the epistle to the Romans. This, the greatest epistle he ever wrote, the most majestic of epistles that he wrote, the most intensely theological of epistles that he ever wrote. And he's saying, almost by way of conclusion, that there are depths here. There are things, in essence, that are blowing his mind. There are things that he is, he's, he's barely you know, trying to just grasp and then communicate to us. You see, this passage is sort of like a hinge in the letter to Romans. It's a doxological statement based on everything that has preceded it before, and especially chapters 9, 10, and 11. And then after he makes this statement, the direction of the letter changes. It's all application in chapters 12 and through 16. It's as if you could almost divide Romans in half here at the end of chapter 11. And so back in chapter 1, the Apostle Paul lays out the broken relationship between God and fallen, fallen man, and he, then he sets up the gospel. We've been given over to our sin. Our depravity is clear. And then in the following chapters, he proceeds to lay out the problems that this creates. God demands perfect righteousness, and people in their lostness aren't even seeking it. And then he introduces the solution and and to this problem, the gospel, and he does so from many different facets from chapters 2 all the way through 11. And he could very easily, from chapter 1 all the way through 11, verse 32, expound on all of the different sola statements as they're leading into this doxological statement from the apostle, this doxological song, really. It is Paul's response to the mystery of salvation that was hidden for God in all ages. It, it all just hits him. And he overflows with praise. Again, this is the response of the one who knew God well. Of the one who, who, who knew doctrine, who had understanding that others didn't. Oh, the depths. You know, Paul had a remarkable mind. He had a remarkable education under the tutelage of Gamaliel. You remember the Apostle Peter said that some of the things that the Apostle uh, Paul writes, some of them are hard to understand. This is the other, the other apostle, the other most preeminent apostle, Peter, says that some of the things Paul wrote were hard to understand. And it's quite possible that some of the very things that Peter found hard to understand to be the things that Paul was speaking about here in, in the book of Romans, especially in chapters 9, 10, and 11. And the apostle Paul is saying that there are, there are depths here. He's been expounding theology He's been expounding the revelation of God in the gospel. He's been expounding on the mysteries and the beauties of the faith. 
He has gone to the heights here in Romans. As much as it is possible for a human mind to understand, he has been taken that high to see and then to reveal for us. And now it's as if he's looking down from that height. And he comments, oh, the depths. And he's not even, as, of course, as high as he could go. He's limited to what God reveals, but he's still in awe. And we need to remember this purpose of God. We need to remember that one of the things God intends by revealing to us himself and disclosing himself and giving to us the scriptures, which exalt Christ and the redemption that only comes in him, is that when the arrogance of our Adamic pride, which is part of our fallen nature, uh, needs to also be addressed, we ought to remember that even the great Apostle Paul exclaims, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. There are things we don't know. There are things that even now we are only beginning to understand. I remember someone making a comment to me, a remark to me after I graduated um, seminary with a master's in divinity. And he said to me, he said, oh, so he said, you know, so, so now you're an expert on the Bible now. But I, I knew that he was saying that to me because of the way that he said it and the tone in which he said it, is that there was an irony in what he was saying. Because he realized, as I realize, as anybody who really wants to devote themselves to studying Scripture, that the more you study, really, it's almost as if the more ignorant you realize yourself to be. And the Apostle Paul is saying here, I have seen great things, I have seen mysteries, but there are depths here that my mind cannot begin to fathom or even comprehend. And you notice that the Apostle Paul is actually citing here in verse 34 from the prophet Isaiah and from the 40th chapter. It's Isaiah 40, 13. He says, Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or, or what man shows him his counsel? And the apostle is saying, as perhaps he's been reflecting on this 40th chapter of Isaiah, that there are issues and there are aspects and realities in the mind and being of God that you and I as creatures will just never simply understand, especially not here in, in this time period before we are glorified. And even when we are glorified, we'll never be able to plumb the depths of all of God's majesty because God is so infinite. He's so immense. And though we give thanks to God for what he has revealed, for that which he has disclosed in the scripture, and even some of those things are, again, they're hard to understand, you and I should realize that this morning that there is more to God and more to the being of God and more to the attributes of God and more to the character of God and more to the ways of God that you and I can ever fully understand. And because of that, we cry out to God be the glory. It's a good thing. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children, is what Moses said. So, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. And I think he means by that, actually, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. It's not so much that God owns everything and, and the apostles blown away by his riches. Of course, God does own everything. Everything is his. But he's talking here about the depth of the riches of God's wisdom and the depth of the riches of God's knowledge. It's God's wisdom and knowledge which are impacting Paul at this moment, specifically concerning his plan of salvation. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. In, in 1554, beginning in February, and through until the following year in 1555, which is about mid-April then or so, 
about 14 months long. Uh, John Calvin, a pastor there in Geneva, he embarked on an exposition of the book of Job. Calvin was a, a preaching monster, if you know anything about John Calvin, and his devotion to systematically, verse by verse, verse by verse, preaching the word. And when he was healthy, he would often preach about 10 times a week in different sermons. So he was, he was no slouch in the pulpit by any means. And he preached 159 sermons expounding the book of Job, beginning in the first verse right through the end of the book. Like I said, he went verse by verse. And as he was starting the series in the first uh, sermon he preached on the book of Job, he said this. He said, it is a good thing, a great thing, a wonderful thing to be subject to the majesty of God. And in a sense, that is what the book of Job is essentially about. It's about learning in the midst of trials and difficulties to be subject, to be subject to the majesty of God, to the glory of God. And we'll revisit that in, in just a moment. But notice here how the apostle, seemed, what he seems to think about the incompre incomprehensibility of God. He speaks, first of all, of the knowledge of God. Oh, the depths of the riches of the knowledge of God. God knows everything. He knows everything. He knows himself. He knows the intricacies of his own being. There are no secret recesses or corners of his own being that are unknown to him. He knows himself fully. We can't say that about ourselves. He has a perfectly integrated knowledge of himself. And he, on top of that, he knows all that is outside of himself. He knows the entirety of creation. He, know, he knows the number of hairs on each one of our heads. A sparrow doesn't fall to the earth apart from God's knowledge. He knows the answer to every question. He knows every question that we have. The future is, is not open to God. He knows the end from the beginning. Everything happens according to the counsel of His will. His decrees are unfolding through providence. There, there are no secrets. There is no fact, no detail that is unknown to God. He knows these things that as yet have not even come to pass. They have not even yet come into being. The future is not going to catch God by surprise because of his infiniteness of his knowledge, because of his decree. He knows everything, not because he looks into the future and learns it, but because everything happens according to the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1.11. Oh, the depths of the knowledge of God. And not only the knowledge of God, but the wisdom of God. Oh, the depths both of wisdom and the knowledge of God. And you understand the difference between wisdom and knowledge. They're closely related, of, uh, certainly. It's one thing to know something, but to be wise, you need to know how to use that knowledge, how to achieve that good end. There, there are plenty of people out there who are smart, who have knowledge, but they can't apply that knowledge. They, they can't use it. I've read that there are some uh, Fortune 500 companies that make it a practice to never hire the top graduates from Ivy League, Ivy League schools because experience has taught them that some of these people with the most knowledge can't do anything with it in the field. That's not the case with God, though. God has perfect wisdom. He perfectly applies the knowledge he has, and then he acts perfectly. And not only his wisdom, but his judgments. God's decrees, what God has determined. It's what Paul is talking about when he says this in Ephesians, in his epistle to the Ephesians. This is Ephesians 3, 10 to 11. He says, So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to his eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. The, the eternal purpose of God Almighty 
God's plan, God's plan to bring about the salvation of his people, there are depths to that plan, glorious depths, depths that should cause us to say, Soli Deo Gloria. There are depths to his knowledge, depths to his wisdom, and there are depths to God's judgment, and there are depths to God's ways. We would have never thought to do it this way. And because the reality is God's ways are not our ways. God's providence, the unfolding of God's will in the details and intricacies of our individual lives, how this plan of God impinges upon us, there are depths to it. Depths which cause some of us to cry out to him from time to time for an explanation of what it is that he's doing. Intricacies so beyond our understanding that sometimes some of us are led to doubt. Isn't that so? Sometimes we doubt whether we know what God is doing. Sometimes we wonder if God has forgotten about, about us, and, and more on that in a moment. But what Paul is saying, and it's not a good thought, but again, more on that in a moment. But what Paul is saying is, oh, the depths. You understand, my friends, it's a little wonder that we don't understand the ways of God in our lives because there are depths to the way of God. It's beyond our understanding often. These are the intricacies to the ways of God. These are the mysteries to the ways of God. So the apostle is saying here, as he scanned the purpose of God as it unfolds in the revelation of the gospel, God is beyond our understanding. There is a sense sense in which God is incomprehensible to us, and this brings him glory. And this is not bad news in any way, especially because of this next point. As we consider this this next point, we're going to think about the sovereignty of God. In the second place, not only is God incomprehensible, God is sovereign. Do you notice how in verse 34 and 35, if you have your Bible open, the, the format of the text looks a bit different in your Bibles? It's telling you that the apostle here is quoting, and he's quoting the Old Testament in, in this passage specifically. The first verse, verse 34, he quotes from Isaiah 40. And we mentioned this already. You know, who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? It's a rhetorical question, of course. No one should be raising their hands at this moment. Nobody should be reading this and be like, oh, it's me, God. I got this. It's a, it's a rhetorical question. Nobody does that. And that's the point. No one can do this. God is sovereign and doesn't need us to tell him what to do. He doesn't need us to counsel him. He doesn't need for us to tell him what's going on in the world. God knows more than us. We've already established that. And he's not filled with knowledge alone, but he has wisdom. He applies the knowledge that he has perfectly. So he doesn't need any counsel. He doesn't need any counsel from us. We we don't have as much knowledge as him. I'm reminded of what God, God said in Job 38. He said, Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? We don't want to be on the receiving end of that comment. Psalm Psalm 115.3 says, and actually it proclaims, really, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. He's sovereign, church. He doesn't need for us to counsel him. And then he quotes from the Old Testament again, this time from the 41st chapter of Job. He says, who has given him a gift that he might be repaid? Who has given him a gift that he might be repaid? Do you understand what it is the apostle is doing in citing this verse? This, this verse in the book of Job comes at the conclusion of the book of Job. And you remember, Job has been, in this book, asking for an explanation as to why things are happening the way they are in his life. Job, this righteous man, had everything stripped from him. And then he had friends come who weren't very friendly after all. 
And so he's been asking for an explanation of what's happening in his life. Why is it not working out according to plan, according to Job's plan? And God has been silent because Job has come before God until he finally does speak. And and at that point, God puts Job in his place. Uh, Because Job has come before God, he's demanded an explanation as though God owes us an explanation. And one of the things that Job learns at the end of this trial is that in actual fact, God owes us nothing. Not an explanation, not anything. And as an aside here, I do want to, kind of a long aside, I do want to mention that the Christian has an advantage when it comes to trials, thankfully to God's sovereignty. We do go through hard trials, don't we? The very same trials that many people apart from Christ go through as well. Uh, But we have an advantage. There is glory in the darkest place, as it were. When things aren't working out the way that we, that, that we think they should be in our lives, the fact that God is sovereign is an encouragement for us because it means that whatever is happening isn't happening by random chance. In other words, it's not something which has taken place because God is unable to do anything about it. He is able, and whatever is happening, whatever the trial is, it's happening from the outflow of the riches of his wisdom and knowledge. And you know what that means, church? It means, in fact, that whatever is happening is in some sense good because of the simple fact, of course, that God's wisdom and knowledge is good. Not that the bad thing or the trial itself is good, but that God's plan, which he is sovereignly unfolding, that is good. A couple of verses, okay? Psalm 145, 17. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works, in all of them. Romans 8.28 is a favorite verse of mine. It says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. So again, the trial is certainly often hard. It can bring you to the point of depression. It did that for Job. He was so low at one point that he told God that he wished the day that he was born was struck from the calendar. The trial is hard. But Christian, God is good and he loves you. Jesus died for you. He rose for you. He lives now to make intercession for you. The trial or the pain that you are going through certainly isn't some punishment on you for something you've done. Not for the Christian, not ever. Romans 8.1 tells us that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Why is that? Because Jesus took all the condemnation upon himself. His shoulders bore it. His death propitiated the wrath that we deserve. And so think about what you're actually saying when you as a Christian or when you hear a Christian say something like this, that the bad thing that has happened in their life has come about because of something that, that they did, something that I did. By the way, I'm not talking about something like you know, getting a ticket for driving 60 miles per hour in a 25 zone. That's a consequence of your choice. I'm talking here about things that are outside of your control, especially. Or I'm thinking of the guilt that sometimes a Christian may have from an act that they did before they were saved. I'm thinking about the Christian who says, who says this, like blank, and then just insert whatever trial or pain is in your life, is happening because I did something wrong. This thing, whatever it is, is punishment. I hear things like that all the time. I see things like that all the time, and it breaks, it breaks my heart. It breaks my heart for one, because I know the, the burden, the pain, 
The trial is hard and it hurts for the individual, but it breaks my heart as well because of what it implies about the gospel. You see, when someone says something like that, it implies that the cross was not enough. That God still has to punish you in whatever way you feel like what is happening, so, whatever bad thing, whatever trial you feel like is happening, is that you're saying that Jesus' cross work wasn't enough. There needs to be some on you still. The gospel is cheapened when we think like that. God's glory is just diminished when we think like that. We must not think like that. We must remember that we are totally forgiven in Christ Jesus. That all our sin, past, present, and future has been atoned for. Again, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So the, the trial, Christian, that you have in your life, the pain that you're feeling from things not being the way that you want them to be, it's not because God is displeased with you. He is perfectly pleased with us in Christ. These trials and these pain that we feel here in this life are not because we deserve them. Verse 2 in chapter 8 says that we have been set free from the law of sin and death. God is, is kind to us in Christ, and he doesn't give us what we deserve. These trials, this pain that you're feeling, whatever it is, they are there actually because God in his wisdom and knowledge is working in us to conform us to our Savior, to Christ, so that when you have a right grasp of God's sovereignty and God's glory and his goodness, then you can say along with Charles Spurgeon that I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me upon the rock of ages. God doesn't leave you in your trial and your pain. He uses it. He leads you to himself through it. He, he himself is the foundation of our joy and peace. In Luke 11, after providing a model for prayer, Jesus instructs the disciples to be persistent in prayer. So continue to pray for whatever trial or whatever pain is in your life. Your Father in heaven knows how to give you good gifts, but be humble and give God glory as you wait. Because remember what Job learned. God owes us nothing. As we were hearing over the past few weeks, our salvation is by grace alone, through faith, and not of works, lest any man should boast. And that the gospel is a declaration that reveals the grace of God. Romans 1 through 11 has been teaching that very thing. So if that's why we had uh, the call to worship this morning. We read that passage that Pastor Nick's been preaching through the last three weeks because Romans 1 through 11 have taught those same exact things. And so it follows that Paul would cite this passage from Job here, emphasizing, as the verse does, the sovereignty of God. And it is perhaps all the more important that this verse should be cited here, especially after what the Apostle Paul has written in the preceding chapters, in chapters 9, 10, and 11. The chapters that have expounded on the intricacies of the doctrine of election and predestination and have found its climactic statement in chapter 9, verse 13. And there we read, and you can turn back to there if you like. Jacob I have loved, and Esau have I hated. There are not many other verses in the Bible that emphasize the sheer sovereignty of God in the administration of his grace. Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. And it may be that you and I might have said, I, I can understand if it had been the other way around, if, we, if we're familiar in many ways with the story of Jacob and Esau, if we know the account of these two brothers, we might be inclined to say that Esau was more likable than that shifty, conning brother Jacob. 
and yet in the sovereignty of God, that God might be glorified, that he might make the riches of his grace known. He reveals his purpose and says that there is a purpose of God according to the election of grace, and there is a purpose of God which leads to reprobation. Salvation is to the glory of God. Reprobation, by the way, is simply the flip side of the coin to election. It simply means that God did not choose a person to salvation before the foundation of the world, as it says he did for the elect in Ephesians chapter 1. That's what reprobation means, that they are not chosen in Christ. God did not choose to elect him or her. And we might be tempted to say at this point, but that's not fair. That's, that's unjust of God. And you see now why the Apostle Paul is citing this verse from Job, I hope. Because fairness has nothing to do with it. Because there is none righteous, there is no one who seeks after God, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and no, not one of us has given anything to God that he might repay us. Salvation is a free gift from God for his glory, emphasizing, do you see, the sheer sovereignty of God and his administration of grace. And God is glorified in these matters, yes, even in reprobation. Now let's just turn back to Romans, if you're, if you're still in Romans 9, let's just look at it there so we might see this. That this is part of what the apostle means when he says, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How inscrutable are his judgments and how unsearchable are his ways. Verse 13 is that verse which we already mentioned. God loves Jacob, Esau, he hates. And then in verse 14, he anticipates our claims of it not being fair, doesn't he? He asks if there is injustice on God's part. And the answer, of course, it's no. It's, it's by no means. He has mercy on whom he wills. He has compassion on whom he wills. G again, God doesn't owe us anything. That's the lesson Job had learned. And then he quotes Exodus 9, 16, which is very interesting. I'll read it for you. It's Romans 9, 17. He says, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. You know what that means, right? It means that not only is man's chief end is, is to glorify God, which, by the way, Pharaoh does, but by being an example of God's power, it means that we may also observe that God's chief end is to glorify God and to glorify himself forever. That God himself is concerned with glory and the, and the proclamation of it. That his creatures would know it. God says multiple times through the prophets, he's things like, for my name's sake, for my name's sake, I do this. He does it for his own glory. God is obsessed, as it were, and not in a bad way, with his own glory. Because his glory is who he is. It is the sum of his attributes. It's like we sang earlier just a moment ago, his glory is beautiful. And all, the sum of all of his attributes. And he is the very best of beings, worthy of praise and worship. I would encourage you to look on the outline, all those verses about showing a zeal for God's glory. They make the, the testimony of God's zeal very clear. If you look back at chapter 9, verse 19, now, the Apostle Paul raises another objection that people may have to the glory of God's sovereignty and salvation. And he claims his rights as a creator in verse 21. You know, he's the potter. We are the clay. What, what can we say? But what I want you to see is verse 22 and verse 23. 
Because we are thinking of the glory of God this morning, especially His glory in redeeming sinners. And since we are thinking people, we need to think rightly about the fact that some people are not saved, that some people are not elect, that some people are reprobate. And so how does that fit into God's glory? So look at Romans 9, 22 to 23. He says, What if God, desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath, prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He has prepared beforehand for glory? Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom of God. Even those who are not elect, the reprobate, they serve a purpose in making known the glory of God. That's what the text says, right? It's clear. A plain reading of it is clearly that is what it is saying. You see, God, in all of his beauty and all of his radiance, ordained creation to be this way, that all of his attributes may be fully known. Not fully, of course, but that we may grasp more of them. If God's chief end is to glorify himself, then he will not create a world in which everyone is designed for grace and mercy. There will be some that are designed for justice. And so you say, why? Why is that? Why can't everyone just be saved? Well, Pastor Brian Borgman is is helpful here, and he notes that God will be glorified in the damnation of sinners by the display of his eternal justice and wrath. And I know we may not like to think of that, but I ask you, If God is concerned with making himself known, with making himself to be enjoyed forever by those who love him, how is it that his grace would be made known if he never made his justice known? What would grace be if there was no execution of justice? Grace would not be grace if there was no execution of justice. And God's eternal execution of justice against the wicked will forever stand as a black velvet backdrop that will forever accentuate all of the cuts in the diamond of grace. You take away that black backdrop, and all of a sudden the diamond of grace loses some of its luster, some of its brilliance, and God will not allow that to happen. And so then from that, we understand that there are vessels of wrath that will forever be monuments to magnify God's mercy. And to that, we say soli deo gloria. And so we see in this passage the incomprehensibility of God, and that God, and that it glorifies him. There are depths and knowledge to the wisdom of God, and we see also in this passage the sovereignty of God, and that likewise glorifies him as well. And so in a third place, this third category, the glory of God itself. And that's that last verse, back to Romans 11. For from him, through him, and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Paul says, from through, and to him are all things. That would, be, that would be everything. Again, what we just talked about, even those who aren't saved. And so especially in our salvation, we see that these things rebound to his glory. To the glory of God, because from him, to him, and through him are all things. This is why we note that this sola statement was the heartbeat of the Reformation. They were seeking reform for the sake of God's glory. God must be glorified in salvation. Furthermore, our desire and our hope as Christians is that God is glorified in all things. So I figured, you know, now that we're at the end of the sermon, that we should finally try and define what glory is. I don't know if you've ever thought much about what glory is. What exactly is glory? It's actually not a word that's easy to define. Scripture speaks of it at at length, and it describes it as resplendent, 
he describes it as unspeakingly majestic, overpoweringly radiant, irresistibly powerful, consummately holy, exquisitely wonderful, breathtaking and inspiring. It causes people to fear. If we were to look upon the glory of God fully in our unglorified bodies, it would drop us dead like that. It's a word that is impossible for us to define fully. But Pastor John Piper has spent a lot of time thinking about the glory of God, and he has a helpful definition of it. He notes that it's not, it's not like a basketball, something with precise dimensions that you can touch and hold and put into a box or take a picture of. He says that it's, it's like the word beauty. We know what it is, but find it impossible to express what it is adequately with words. And he ends up defining it like this, and this is, this is pretty good as far as the definition goes. God's glory is the radiance of his holiness, the radiance of his manifold, infinitely worthy and valuable perfections. God's glory is the radiance of his holiness, the radiance of his manifold, infinitely worthy and valuable perfections. That's not bad, but I think there may be one better that we can do. Whereas we struggle to precisely define what God's glory is, we can simply say with the heart of faith that the glory of God is Jesus. Dead stop. That's it. The glory of God is Jesus. Just a few verses. Hebrews 1, 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. We want to know what God's glory is like. Look at Jesus. Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. The word dwelt there in John 1.14 is used with great purpose by John. It can literally be translated as tabernacled. The idea is that the word, and remember what verse 1 says, that the word is God. So this, this word that is God takes on flesh, it takes on a human nature, in other words, and tabernacles among us. And in doing so, we have seen his glory. Glory, who? The only begotten sons. And that glory is the same glory of the Father. So again, when we think of what is glory, it's hard to wrap our minds around it, but think of Christ. It's a shared glory because the Father and the Son are one in essence. So this word, this eternal logos, in flesh is on the earth and the glory of the Father is in him. Where else have we been told that the glory of God dwelt with the people outside of the garden? The first time is in Exodus 40. Up to this point in, in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, the glory of God... Um, after having redeemed the people out of Egypt, the glory of God was leading Israel day and night by fire. And then in, as Exodus goes on, God instructs them how to make a tabernacle. And they're, they're given instruction on how it is that they're supposed to worship God. And in that, um, you know, how he is properly and you know, glorified, essentially. And the very term that John uses to show us what, in, what Jesus did in the Incarnation is the same word that God uses here in verse 40 when he talks about the tabernacle. It's Exodus 40, verse 34. It says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. 
So the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle here in Exodus 30. The glory of the Lord filled Christ, who tabernacled with us, we read in John 1. So the presence of the Lord, there summed up by his glory, was so thick in Exodus chapter 30 that Moses wasn't able to enter the tent of meeting. And while Israel had the tabernacle with them as they traveled through the wilderness, the glory of the Lord, the presence of the Lord, would be there on his tabernacle. And then many generations later, after when Israel entered into the promised land, after God has continued his covenant promises, now with the Davidic covenant established, they have an actual temple and no longer a tent as the meeting place of God. But we see the same thing happen as with the tabernacle happening here. Both the tabernacle and the temple are pointing us to Christ. This is 2 Chronicles chapter 7. You can look there, just a few chapters over. So Solomon has built the temple, they, cons- they consecrate it, and I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but just like how God dwelt with his people in the wilderness by filling the tabernacle, he does the same thing in the temple. This is verse seven, chapter 7, 1 and 2. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priest could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. And so John has used this word dwelt to make us realize something very unique about Jesus. He's saying very plainly that if you want to meet God and find favor with him, you have to go to Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. In the wilderness, the priests would have to enter the tabernacle to meet with God and make sacrifices. In the promised land, the same thing, but in the temple. People would even travel to Jerusalem to make requests of the priests as they would intercede for the people. And now since God has assumed a human nature, we must go to Jesus to meet with God. He is the very glory of God, the radiance of his glory and the exact imprint of his nature. And he himself, as the great high priest for whom all the prophets in the Old Testament were a shadow of, the letter to the Hebrews tells us that he himself made atonement for his people one time. And then he sat down at the right hand of the Father, ever living to make intercession for his people. Theologians, theologians have called that the session of Christ. His session of reigning at the right hand of the Father. It's, it's glorious. He is glorious. And so you see why, I hope, church, we must affirm soli deo gloria. Salvation is from God. From him are all things. He created all that is. Everything that has been, everything that, ex- that comes into existence comes because God brought it into, into being. He spoke the word ex nihilo. Out of nothing it comes by the creative mind of Almighty God. From him are all things. And through him are all things. The God, the God of Scripture, is not the God of the deist who, having made creation, then goes off and snoozes and just lets everything happen, lets the chips fall where they may. But he's intimately involved in every facet of creation and providence. All things are sustained by him. Through him are all things. And to him are all things. Everything that happens, happens for a purpose. It's about him. It's not about us. I remember a dear sister who was struggling with cancer for a long time, who I think many of you might remember, Louise Bradshaw. And one of the things I loved about Louise is through that trial... She would always say, it's not about me. It's about God. Everything is to God. Sometimes those who suffer actually minister more to ministers than we're able to minister to you. 
also it's about him. You know, the glory of God humbles us. It helps us to realize that our chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And because at the end of the day, friends, this is what the Reformation signaled most clearly. It's what these five sola statements recover. The great end and purpose of God in creation and redemption and saving us and in rescuing you and I and in bringing us into union with Christ is to say to us, to you and me, your chief end is to glorify me and enjoy me forever. That is what God is saying to us. Can we say soli deo gloria about everything that happens in our lives? Can we live quorum deo, as it were? That means before the face of God, knowing these things, church. Can we do all things for God's glory? The Apostle Paul was so humble to be brought to that point of bowing the knee and acknowledging to God be the glory in all things. And he said, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. That, that is the heart of the scriptures, God's glory. and is the very heart of the gospel and is the very heart of God himself. Soli Deo Gloria. To God be the glory. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful that you humble us because we need it, Lord. We know that in our flesh, our desire is to exalt ourselves. And you didn't simply overlook that sin in us. You paid that sin on your beloved Son, who is the radiance of of your glory, that we might be able to share in your glory through a faith in him. We pray, Lord, that you would increase in us a desire for you to be glorified, that you would give to us the grace that we need to do all things for your glory, Lord. Forgive us for not being that way and help us to live with resolve today, going forward and every day, that we might live with an eye to your glory. You are worthy of glory. Oh, the depths of it. Let us understand. Holy Spirit, please, we need you. Help us and bless us even now as we get to sing together one last time. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.